Today, we talk about why we are experiencing such a tumultuous election. We talk about the potential of voter fraud in some of these swing states, the need for new election reform, and we give an update on where the presidential race stands on this Thursday, day three of the presidential election. All this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back to Election Day Round 3 of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. It is. It is indeed Election Day Round 3. That is wild. So much has happened in the last 72 hours. The news is changing every single moment. It's not like we're just waiting on one state's results. We are waiting on five states' results, ultimately. And not only that, a lot of the intricate scenarios that are taking place in each of these five states are very different and very controversial, and there's lawsuits, and it's just a big old mess. So I hope that this show has been a helpful resource for you to condense as much of that important information as possible and give it in a bite-sized chunk that you can take in as you are going about your busy days, uh, whatever you are up to, whether that's work or school or different responsibilities. Not all of us have uh, unlimited time to watch the news, nor do we maybe want to, uh, and track the coming developments minute by minute. So I hope that this show is a helpful resource for you to um attain as much of that helpful, necessary information as possible. I am doing my best to provide that for you all. Also, make sure you follow me on Instagram, at Real Michael Seifert. I'm reporting sort of the minute-by-minute news there on my Instagram story, where you can track with the developments as they come out. As always, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, please do that at Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can get notified when a new episode is released. I have my episode from Tuesday detailing election day. And then yesterday was my first recap of the results. And then today, obviously releasing this episode, giving a rundown. And then tomorrow I'll release another episode as well, because we're probably going to learn some pretty pivotal, uh, circ, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We're going to learn some pivotal results that'll change the game quite a bit on the election outlook tonight. So I will be covering those tomorrow as well. Make sure you're tracking with me there. I want to jump in And I want to give just a few thoughts on what we're observing this morning and what it means. What are some of the bigger lessons behind what we're seeing at the moment? What should we be looking out for as we go throughout the rest of the day? So let's get into it. This has been a disaster. It's been chaos. And the reality is we knew it would come. I I remember six, seven weeks ago on the show, we addressed the reality that a lot of these different state courts, a lot of these different Supreme Courts in these various states like Nevada, for example, New Jersey, had said, hey, we are going to change up our election style. We are going to allow for universal mail-in ballots. We are going to allow for, like in Pennsylvania, um, a an ability to be a bit subjective on judging the discrepancies on postmark dates. We're going to really kind of uh, allow the process to lose a lot of the safeguards that currently help ensure election integrity. And they did this in the name of COVID. The the whole goal was we need to allow mail-in ballots universally and just send it to every single registered voter because that'll ensure that everyone has access amid COVID. And then Fauci comes out and is like, we don't even need this. Everybody can be able to and should be able to vote in person. Then the CDC comes out and says, yes, we should all vote in person. So it's just, it was unnecessary, not only 
not only was it unnecessary, it was also destructive. For example, Nevada has been conducting their first ever universal ballot election in this cycle, and it has been utter chaos. We just heard from Clark County, them describing some of the challenges that they're having in Clark County, getting this vote out. And the, the election currently resembles something more out of a third world or a developing country than it actually does a free and fair election process. It's a total mess. And it's because they decided to take off some of the safeguards that allow for election integrity and decided to drop the standards for what would constitute a proper vote. And now we have chaos. It's why a lot of these states, when they decided to not count any of these mail-in ballots until the end of the day on election day, uh, was an awful decision because it essentially pushed back our decision. We're waiting two or three days, and then you have vote counts stop, but yet you receive votes in the middle of the night, and that creates some sketchy situations, and you don't have then the ballot watchers there to uh, observe the process, and there's just been a... a I don't want to overuse the word disaster, but essentially has been. I mean, we all know that. It's day three. We still don't know the results. We're still waiting on, again, not I, like I said, not just one state. We're waiting on a few different states with varying circumstances. And we have these lawsuits now because there are discrepancies in the results. And so that's, that's my first thought here. We knew this would happen. And I hope and pray that this is a massive wake-up call for the country to say our decisions and who we elect into office who we allow to uh, be appointed by those elected officials, honestly, because not only by electing a lot of these officials do we elect them to their position, but then we also elect them knowing that they'll also probably appoint other people to these different court positions. And so that's a whole nother conversation for another time of just how far our vote truly extends. But I hope that it's a wake-up call to say that our our decisions have consequences. And two months ago, when all these court decisions started being made about the differing ballot processes and the way in which these elections would be massively changed on a massive scale for the first time in a lot of these states' histories, nobody weighed the cost-benefit analysis of this. Nobody said, okay, it will be maybe beneficial in these ways, but it'll be very costly in these ways. Are we sure it's worth it? Instead, a lot of these Democratic-controlled regions of the country just said, hey, if it'll help us get more mail-in ballots and it's looking like Democrats are going to be more comfortable to mail in, let's do that. Let's go with that. And that's a direct cause and effect situation here that's resulted in the chaos that we are currently seeing. So again, I'm at peace. Like I mentioned yesterday, like I mentioned the day before, I am at peace. We ultimately know who is victorious over this world. I'm going to repeat it again of the increase of Jesus Christ's government and of his peace. There shall be no end. Amen. But it does not mean just because we have that peace, it does not mean that the results that we are seeing take place on the in the earth here in the United States does not matter. Of course, we have to engage. We have to be attentive to the process. We can't just say, oh, well, God's got it, so I'm not going to pay attention. There is a partnership here where we know that he is sovereign over the process, yet he calls us to engage and be aware of what's taking place so that we can pray for what's taking place. We can do our part wherever that part may be. So, I'm at peace, and yet we should still be engaged and be paying attention to these results and the lessons that we need to learn about this for the future. Second thought here is that this has been really sketchy. And as time's gone on, it's gotten more sketchy. And I'm, I'm not a person that jumps to the, you know, right when I see a headline, I'm not a person that just jumps to share it and say, well, it just must be true because somebody posted a video. That is really not me. I like to investigate a lot before I decided to promote something or believe something might be true. And a lot of what's taking place right now what I have done is, instead of just assuming that it's true, call for investigations. And that's something I think we should all get around in, in, as a country is saying, hey, if we see something sketchy arise, let's call for an investigation. 
Let's call for it to be uh, handled in court. Let's call for it to be brought to the surface. Let's call for journalists to actually ask tough questions. Instead, that perspective today, even if you say that, even if you say, hey, guys, this seems like it may be happening here. I'm not saying it is for sure, but let's raise attention to it. Uh, One side of the political aisle will say, no, 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 you're just being a conspiracy theorist if you even bring it up. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's 100% true. What I am saying is that there's a possibility we have some evidence that's leaking, especially I'm related to, I'm talking about voter fraud, by the way. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that's starting to be leaked around the potential for serious voter fraud. And we need to be asking the questions. Media, you do not just get to be the propaganda wing for the Democratic Party and shove all this under the rug and not pay attention to this. We have to ask these questions. I'm not saying that we assume every little claim we see is 100% true. I'm just saying if we see that there's enough evidence coming out, which the Trump campaign clearly sees right now, Corey Lewandowski made that very clear, Rick Grinnell made that very clear in Clark County today in Nevada, then we need to do due diligence and investigate what's taken place on the ground. And if a real journalist, well, if a journalist is real and worth their salt, they will say, regardless of their political affiliation, yeah, with some of this evidence that's coming out, this definitely merits some digging deeper. So- For example, in Michigan, we had a story just come out yesterday where U.S. Postal Service whistleblower in Michigan claimed that higher-ups were engaging in voter fraud. So long story short here, the U.S. Postal Service worker on yesterday told Project Veritas, which is a very credible, very trustworthy investigative journalist organization headed by a guy named James O'Keefe. He's proven himself to be credible and trustworthy, and he specializes in especially uh, exposing government corruption, and he does a really good job of it. So this the... This postal service worker told Project Veritas that a supervisor of his named Jonathan Clark in Traverse City, Michigan, which is one of the big swing states, obviously this election cycle that's been uh, very heated, debated in a serious manner. Trump's filed lawsuits there, rightfully so. It's been sort of a mess. I told you the story yesterday about um, Antrim County. It potentially engaged in voter fraud. That was essentially this postal service worker's claim. We were issued this quote. We were issued a directive this morning to collect any ballots we find in mailboxes, collection boxes, just outgoing mail in general, separate them at the end of the day so that they could hand stamp them with the previous day's date. Today is November 4th for clarification. That was his quote yesterday. So essentially, he was ordered a directive from his supervisor to separate out the mail, find those ballots, stamp them with the previous day's date so that it could look like it was postmarked by election day. Michigan courts ruled that ballots had to be received by the election clerk before the polls on election day, which would mean 8 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, November 3rd. So they come in late, stamp them to make it look like it's November 3rd, even though it's November 4th. This is massive, if true. According to the whistleblower, the ballots are, quote, in express bags so they could be sent to the USPS distribution center. Quote, in regards to a hamper, there's a standard hamper that all letter mail is supposed to go to, and they had a tub next to it that we were supposed to put any ballots collected today into. The postal worker said they decided to come forward because things appeared sketchy and they didn't like the corruption, even though he or she is afraid of potential retaliation. The person said they want other postal workers who see similar things to come forward. Quote, how are we supposed to have any integrity in this county if we are going to let things slide based on a scaling issue? So when Project Veritas founder then, James O'Keefe, on this video, which I'll include the video in my show notes, you can also find it on my Instagram and my Instagram story right now. When James O'Keefe called the supervisor, Jonathan Clark, right when he described why he was calling, Jonathan Clark hung up the phone. So serious, serious claim here. And there appears to be evidence unfolding to back it up. Development in the story this morning, it appears that the Office of the Inspector General for the entire United States Postal Service is investigating the claims. That's massive. 
We are seeing things unfold here that we certainly should be watching out for in that Michigan story. We know there's other instances that have come out over the past few days that have been corroborated where uh, dead people have actually been reported as voting, people that have been dead for decades, in fact. So there was a guy, 118-year-old William Bradley voted via absentee ballot in Wayne County, Michigan. Only problem is William Bradley died in 1984. So there was a journalist that went in and basically ran all these checks and did his uh, Michigan voter registration check and the ballot check to discover, um, did he indeed vote? Was the ballot accepted? And then also went in and uh, got his death records from United States Social Security Death Index and found that it appears this guy is the same guy. William Bradley died in 1984. His age is even on his uh, registration roll or his name is on his registration roll, all the information links up, and it appears as though his application for voter registration was received, it was accepted, and his ballot was counted in this election. It doesn't stop there in Michigan. 120-year-old Terry Mathis, born in 1900, apparently voted via absentee ballot in Wayne County, Michigan as well. And this gets crazier. It says this person applied for an absentee ballot on 11-2, and the ballot was then sent out and returned in the same day. How on earth does that work? That's not even possible. And yet he's in there in this voter registration and his ballot counted. There's so many questions that need answered here. So the Trump campaign's making a good move by pursuing these investigations. And again, any journalist that's worth their salt that tries to say that there's nothing here, we should turn a blind eye to it, uh, and we should not pay attention to any of these claims is, again, not worth their salt. It doesn't stop there. We know that we have media and poll watchers currently kept out of the poll places in Clark County, Nevada, where they're doing the counts, as well as Philadelphia. We know that Philadelphia has a long history of voter fraud and corruption issues in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, so there's a lot to uncover there. We also know that there's still a lot of unanswered questions around the vote dumps that took place overnight in Wisconsin and Michigan that completely tilted the scales for Biden. So we're going to keep updated on this. I'm keep updated on my Instagram as well, watching the stories as they're coming out. But again, I think that the Trump campaign is making a very smart move in filing lawsuits in uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada. I think that's smart. They need to be doing this because we've got to get this out in the open and we cannot have these local jurisdictions that are heavily biased in one direction, uh, basically saying, nope, case closed. Don't worry. Nothing to see here. I'm not claiming that all of these claims are 100% true. What I am saying is that there's enough evidence here to merit serious investigation. And anybody that's restricting that from happening, uh, it's rightful that we would question their motives and why exactly they would have such a problem with it. More updates. We know this morning an appellate court in Pennsylvania ruled uh, that the GOP observers can watch the ballot counts. So initially in Pennsylvania, these people that are legal observers allowed to observe the ballot counts were pushed away from the ballot counts 16 to sometimes 100 feet away. And so the Trump de deputy campaign manager, Justin Clark, touted the win this morning, said that he could not, quote, stress enough how big of a victory this was. Problem was, then the senior enforcement official on the ground in Pennsylvania that is very left-leaning decided to not enforce it. So the appellate court rules that this is legal, that the legal observers should be able to watch the votes. And then what happens? Not only does the senior enforcement official on the ground not enforce it, but then to make matters worse, what they do is they give them six feet of access for a moment and then move all the ballot machines to the other side of the room where they were doing these counts. So they could be six feet from the process, yet 
actually far more distanced away from where the actual accounts was taking place. It's it's very sketchy. And then on top of that, now they're barring media from entering. Like I mentioned, they are in Clark County as well. Officials in Pennsylvania on the Democratic side tried to challenge the results in, by putting it to the Supreme Court. There's no ruling there yet in, in Pennsylvania. So it's just, it's a mess what's going down in Pennsylvania. And there's just not transparency. If you're not worried about hiding something, you don't need to worry about people observing. So if you're not hiding something, what's the problem with legal observers? First of all, it's legal. They have the right to observe. But secondly, why do you, would you have a problem with that in the first place unless you are worried about something you are doing being nefarious and being exposed? So I'll leave that there for now. Third thought I have, all of this combined goes to show, it goes to prove the desperate need we have for election reform in our country. These are my personal opinions, but I believe that a consensus is rising up to say we can never experience this again. We need voter ID laws. It's ridiculous to think that I would need an ID to drink alcohol or to buy Sudafed or to go to any other government run office like Social Security or uh, the DMV. Yet at the end of the day, I wouldn't need an ID to uh, to engage in the most important civic duty in our country. That's really silly to me. So that's a topic for another episode. But at the end of the day, voter ID should be common sense standard, like an, uh, of course, sort of measure. And yet we get pushback from the Democrats on it. National holiday for voting. This is something that I think both sides should get around and say, let's make it a holiday. Let's have people off of work. That really won't benefit either side at the end of the day. So this shouldn't even be political. Let's make it a national holiday so that we don't have to push for things like universal mail-in ballots. Get rid of universal mail-in ballots. That should not even be an option. And in fact, I think we should have stricter requirements for absentee ballots. So to apply for an absentee ballot, I think you have to have a good reason why you can't vote on election day itself. And then you funnel everyone to election day. You make that absolutely the plan A. And if in the end, somebody is out of town for a work thing or something has to happen where they're out of town, they can request an absentee, but they have to get it back. They have to mail it out by two weeks before the election day. You can make really strict requirements here. Two weeks before election day, it has to have signature verification. It is a very checked process. Why would we not implement these these parameters. It makes no sense why we wouldn't take this so seriously. You're determining the future of our country. And if you have any problem with these things, it does raise the question, why are you afraid? If, if you believe that all of your voters are voting in a way that is appropriate and that it's uh, filled with integrity, why is there questions around this? Why wouldn't we adopt these standards across the country? And some people will say, well, different states have the ability to choose their own things and we should keep it to that. That's fine. I think different states should be able to choose a certain level of things within these standards. I think the federal government should say, we are voting for national candidates here. Let's make some standards across the board that each of these states has to hold to. And then if you guys want to do your own thing regarding polling times close, and if you want to do your own thing regarding what time of day you start counting the votes and different things, that's fine. But we have to at least make sure that it hits these different standards. I think that that's common sense reform that we definitely need to talk about once we come down from this election. Like, for example, you have Florida. Florida was done just a few hours in because they have solidified their voting process. It is a tight ship that they run. It works. Nobody feels like they were discriminated against. No one uh, uh, says that they feel like they were suppressed in the vote. They had massive turnout in Florida, and yet we knew the results by the night. Every other state should adopt what Florida has done. And then the United States government, the federal government, should basically say that this is required because these are federal elections here. You're not just voting on your state candidates. If you want to do your own thing for your state candidate, 
candidates. If you want to vote for your city councils in a different way, or your board of supervisors, whatever it is, fine. But at the end of the day, when you're voting on the president of the United States, we have to make sure that these bare minimum checks and balances are addressed. So next, I want to talk about the Senate. The Senate overall was something that the Democrats told you three, four, five weeks before the election. All the pollsters told you, mainstream media, that you know the Senate race would actually be better for the Democrats than even the presidential race. They thought they had a better chance of flipping the Senate than they even did of flipping the presidency. What we saw, though, take place is that the Republicans honestly had a fantastic night in the Senate. They were worried about some races. The Democrats were... Uh, believing they could win some of these races and Republicans actually expressed even some worry around races like South Carolina, where it was Lindsey Graham versus Jamie Harrison. $100 million was raised for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, challenging the Republican Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey Graham won by like 14 points. You had that race in Kentucky with Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath that people were starting to talk about. Well, the polling, the polling might say this. And Mitch McConnell ends up winning by 21 points against Amy McGrath, another race that they poured a lot of money into. We have seen races that, uh, at least at this moment, it looks like we are in an amazing standing that have even shocked some of the pollsters and the mainstream media. Tom Tillis looking like he's winning the race in North Carolina. In fact, he actually uh, said he won two nights ago. Apparently, Cal Cunningham has not yet conceded. But all of these goes to show there's other races as well. We see that Dan Sullivan in Alaska is cruising to victory. Susan Collins won sort of an upset victory um, in the race in Maine by eight points over Sarah Gideon. Apparently, Sarah Gideon did concede and Susan Collins accepted victory. We had some disappointments, of course. Cory Gardner's seat lost in Colorado. Martha McSally's lost in Arizona, at least with the current vote counts. Uh, we kind of expected those two. John James in Michigan really was hoping for a victory there, but he definitely was the underdog, and it looks as though he has lost to Gary Peters. At the end of the day, the Republicans have kept the majority in the Senate if you count North Carolina and Alaska going to the Republicans. So right now, if you go to like New York Times, for example, they won't show that because North Carolina and Alaska formally haven't been called yet. So it looks like it's 48-48 right now with four seats remaining. The reality is North Carolina's done and Alaska's done. Tom Tillis wins North Carolina. Dan Sullivan wins Alaska. Something groundbreakingly massive would have to change in North Carolina to flip that seat blue. Um, neither candidate really believes that's happening at this point, even though Cal Cunningham will kind of say that he does. So... If you take that, we have 50 to 48 favoring the Republicans. The final two races in the Senate that this all comes down to, by the way, Republicans flipped that Alabama seat. Tommy Tuberville won against Doug Jones by 21 points. That's massive. Um, the final two seats in the Senate are both in Georgia. And it's the David Perdue versus John Ossoff seat. And then it's the Raphael Warnock and the Kelly Loeffler seat in Georgia that now heads to a runoff on January 5th. It looks as though David Perdue right now, he's he's polling at 50%, 50.0% over John Ossoff at 47.7% in Georgia at the time of this recording. Now, here's the thing with Georgia. Their Senate race is if you don't get over 50% of the vote, you have to head to a runoff election. So David Perdue literally is right at the threshold right now. If he wins this Senate race tonight, the Republicans keep the Senate without, I say tonight because more votes are supposed to be released in Georgia as the day goes on. If he wins this race, it essentially means the Senate is held in the Republicans' favor without a runoff. Um, if he gets below 50% in this race, it means that our Senate majority will be decided in January in this special Georgia, these two runoff elections. That's a huge deal. Um, that would be groundbreaking, honestly, and it would make for a kind of contentious two months leading up to that race. I, I don't know if that'll happen, even if it does. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Kelly Loeffler will win against Raphael Warnock. Um, that race, it was Kelly and Doug Collins 
that were two Republicans, and they amassed 26 and 20 percent of the vote. Raphael Warnock only amassed 32 percent of that vote. So the reality is, at the end of the day, if you compare the Republican vote over the Democratic vote there, it looks like it's a win. Same deal with David Perdue and Don o- John Ossoff. If you send that to a runoff, you've got still a majority of the Republican votes. Um, you, you'd assume that those Republican votes amassed would lead to victories in probably both of those races. But Georgia's a uh, Georgia's an interesting state, so we'll see how that un- that all that all plays out. I think the Republicans should feel very, very confident and excited and celebratory over the the last few days they have had in these different Senate races. They have surely exceeded expectations. So another spot they've exceeded expectations is in the House. Honestly. They've done a fantastic job in the House, and I actually want to read you um, some numbers here out of their different House races that have been really surprising, because again, remember, the Republicans were heavily favored to lose seats in these House races. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats thought that they would run away with the House and actually gain seats on top of their already majority. Here's where the races stand currently. There are 416 House races that appear decided. Democrats have 212 of those. Republicans have 204. They've amassed plus 10 House seats than they were expected to get. 218 is a majority in the House, by the way. 19 seats remain with GOP in the lead in 10 of those seats. So to win 218 and the House majority, the Republican Party would need to win all the districts they're currently leading in, plus four others, most likely um, a district in California, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Utah. So whether or not the Republicans win the House, that's kind of a long shot at this point. No one ever thought they would even get close most people thought, pollsters, mainstream media, that they would lose seats in the House. So this should be another big wake-up call that polling and the mainstream media institutions in this country are deeply broken. They completely got it wrong. And Republicans need to feel really happy about the night that they've had in Congress, the last few days they've had in Congress. Final thought I have for you in this episode, pay attention to Pennsylvania today, pay attention to Georgia, pay attention to Arizona tonight as we have a another vote dump that uh, last night, the vote dump that took place around 1230 ended up really helping helping the Republicans. We will see if the coming vote dumps in Maricopa County and surrounding counties help Trump again. Who knows? A little early to tell, but that's definitely a contentious race. So again, pay attention to Pennsylvania, what takes place today as more votes unfold. Trump's got a slight lead there right now. Pay attention to Georgia. Trump has a lead, but it's on razor-thin margins. Apparently, the Trump campaign feels confident in Georgia. They said that they're, quote, not losing sleep over it. So we'll see how well that plays out. Ultimately, at the end of the day, praying for peace, praying for a quick result, praying that we know more, that we're not waiting days and days and days and weeks. Unfortunately, North Carolina said that they will not release their final vote count until November 12th. So if Trump ends up needing North Carolina, if either candidate needs North Carolina, we are going to be waiting for a final vote on that for obviously another week. Um, I'll keep you updated. Make sure you're tuning in here tomorrow so that you can hear more results. And then again, just a reminder, head to my Instagram at RealMichaelSeifert so you can get sort of the minute by minute play by play as you have space in your day to do so. With all that being said, it has been an absolute blast to speak to you today. I'm going to leave the episode there. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.